Welcome to Shofar Cape Town South Sermon Podcast. We trust that today's message will edify and strengthen your faith. Amen. Great. Last year, I was praying uh, at some point, and uh, while I was praying, the Lord asked me an interesting question. He said to me, Matthew, from everybody that loves you, your parents, your brothers, your siblings, your cousins, your aunts, and your friends, and your church, the church members, and your students, and everyone, is there anyone that really knows what you are thinking about right now? I said, uh, no. But he said to me, why? I said, well, nobody really knows what I'm thinking about now. Then he said to me, the reason why they cannot know what you're thinking about right now is because there is a part of you that none of them can have access to. There is the inner, deeper part of you that none of them can reach out to. As much as they love you, they, they will never be able to, to get there unless you verbalize yourself or unless you express yourself. Then he said to me, this was the Holy Spirit speaking to me, he said to me, unless your heart is constantly in my presence, then you're probably the loneliest person in the whole world. This reality is a reality that we will all face, and you, and me, and your children, and your brothers, and your sisters, as much as you love them, unless we don't learn the exercise of living in the presence of God, we're probably the most loneliest person in the whole world. Nobody knows what you're thinking about right now. It doesn't matter how much feelings you have for them. And it doesn't matter how many feelings they have for you. They will never be able to know how you feel. And you know, we live in a world where it's all about interest. It's all about how you look. And do you know, I have a friend, his wife is paralyzed. She's been paralyzed for a while. And it's amazing to see how he's serving his wife. For the rest of his life. She can't even fly anymore. Because of her physical condition. He's able to stick with. There are people that got dropped in their lives. Because of how life have made of them. But the Holy Spirit is the only person. Who can stick with you. No matter what your circumstances look like. No matter how your context look like. He can stick with you in this life. And even in the life to come. That's the complexity of this life. On the other hand, there are things that we can't change. There are things that you will never be able to change, even if you are anointed to the point where your roof is shaking. You know, every single night, it's burning like the burning bush. You cannot change your past. You cannot change your past. You do not have the power to change your past. Because in in the reality, in the context of your past, there were so many people, so many things that were outside of your control. We will always have to deal with this greater time frame of our lives, the past, the present, and the future. Now, among these three, the past seems to have preeminence over the others because the past is already lived. And in our mind, there is always the two, these two major rooms. Your memory and your imagination. Your memory 
basically have captured every single thing that have happened to you. Amazing things, good things, things that you did, things that people did unto you, things that were in your control, things that were outside of your control. And many times, the things that are stuck into your memory or your memory capacity have a lot of impact on how much you can imagine. Just think of the, the church in the early days when James was killed. Everybody was in fear. Everybody was panicking because the leader was killed. Now, at some point, Peter was arrested. They were busy praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. While they were praying, an angel delivered Peter. Peter pitches up at the door. While he was knocking, they said, no, it's not Peter. It's an angel. You know why? Fear. They experienced their past affected how they could even believe, even though they were praying, but still affected how they dealt with the present. Now, the, the complexity of the thing is that the present is being lived, and how it lived, it gives you the capacity to handle how much you can think of the future. It's like the Israelites. Even after seeing the Red Sea departing and everything, at some point they said, oh, we're remembering the onions and all the other things of Egypt. They were struggling to imagine a land where they could step in to conquer, even though they had the promises of God. Because of the power of the past. Every one of us in this room was a baby one day. Everyone. There is only one man that we know from scripture. I think my volume is very loud. Iggy, if you can put it a bit down. There is only one man that we know in scripture that was already almost like an adult. It's Adam. When he was just created a few, a few times later, he got married. That was very interesting. Because, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how old he was when God created him. He is the only man that didn't go through the process of being an infant. He just got created, probably on a few hours or a day later or something, suddenly there is, a, there is a woman, he says, oh, these are my bones. The flesh of my flesh. He became already romantic. And I don't know whether God had the romantic training with him. <laughs> Suddenly. He's the only person that didn't go through this process. But it's very interesting to see the coming of Jesus. When Jesus decided to come to save the world, he came as a baby. And it's important. The author of the Gospels, they found such a value in presenting the narrative of Christ. And Part of the narrative, they all presented him as the one who came as a baby. And you'll see, for example, in Luke, they even says, they even speak about his youth. When he was 12 years old, he was in the temple and he was asking questions. He was asking the right questions. He was sitting amongst the teachers. They found such a value in speaking of the process of his maturity and his growth. Why am I saying these things? I'm saying these things because there is a tension. There is a tension between two kingdoms. There is a kingdom of light. There is a kingdom of darkness. And both are very interested in babies. Both are very interested in the future generation. If you read in Exodus 1 verse 16, you will see that Pharaoh gave an instruction. He said, to the midwives, that all the male that were born, first of all, before that, the context is that 
he noticed that the Jews were growing. They were developing in numbers. And he said, if we let these people developing and multiply, one day they will turn against us. And amongst the decrees he made, he said that they had to kill all the male babies. One of his fears was that once these one grow, they will probably become military. Uh, they will join the military. And they might connect with other armies of other nations that are against Egypt, and they will fight against them. Another reason could be that, okay, well, once they grow, they might end up marrying even Egyptians and still um, do whatever they may. So he decided maybe to, to do that so that maybe if they only raise girls, these girls may marry Egyptians and they will lose their identity. So in his plans as Pharaoh, as a king, he didn't undermine the life of the little ones. Because he knew out of them was going to be many that would have done so many things to change the whole dynamic of Egypt. And it is only a few verses later, you see in chapter 2, that Moses is being born. And you find this same narrative when Jesus was born. Jesus was born, and at some point, there was this wise man that appeared, and they said to him, well, we came to worship the king. And he told them, once we find him, please come and tell me, so that I will also go and worship him. And these wise men, they were told by God, they were warned by God, they moved through another direction. And then suddenly, Herod made an made a instruction to kill all the male. But in reality, he was targeting one. In reality, he was targeting one of the potential that could have been the Savior. And I believe this picture that we see through the Gospels and even through Moses' books, the Pentateuch, they say so much about how generationally God thinks. And I think it's very important for us to to understand how God thinks. And I was saying these two kingdoms are both longing for the baby. Because the one who was born, he wasn't just a baby. But he was a king as well. There was so much destiny into him. In fact, if you read the Rebecca story, when she was pregnant, the Bible says she had issues in her womb. And the Bible says she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, these two, and the issues that you're facing is that there is two nations that are going to be born out of you. So here's my point. I'm speaking to you about one of the dangers that we may face today as a church in terms of raising the next generation. I'm speaking about this little concept called an optical illusion. An optical illusion is basically a deception, an eye deception. That gives you an impression that something is what it's not really. It's like, for example, you're sitting in your room and you have a suit. And suddenly because it's dark and the, your suit is shaking. And you think it's someone. And you're so afraid. You know, or if someone is maybe afraid of snakes, suddenly you see in your room something that looks like a snake. And suddenly because it's very dark, you're like, oh! You're very afraid. Because what you're seeing it's not really what's there until light comes. My biggest fear about what I'm seeing, 
us as Christians and how we're handling the next generation is that we're not careful enough to actually make sure that in everything that we do, we do not put the next generation in a place where they might look at things and they think, this is it. Well, what they think is, is, it's not. And this is the challenge that a man in the Bible faced. Asaph. Asaph was one of the prophetic leaders in the tent of David. Asaph came from the line of Geshom, who was one of the prophets in the Bible. He prophesied through singing. And he wrote 12 psalms. He wrote Psalm 50. He wrote all the psalms from Psalm 73 up to Psalm 83. He was a prophetic man. He was a Levite. He, was, he really knew God. He was a, he was a man that, that understood the prophetic and he was a very good musician. And Asaph means a collector. So sometimes he collected the words from David and out of that he was able to speak God's mind over Israel. Suddenly Asaph is facing a reality that creates some kind of confusion where that which he feels is true is not fully true. And this is in Psalm 73. If you can just know way, thank you. He says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such so the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands of the death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. Neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Next slide, please. The eyes stand out. With fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither. And waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? Is there knowledge in the most high. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Following one, verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hand in innocence, in innocency. For all the day I have long, or for all the day long, have been, have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thine children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful to me, for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood their hands. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. I can even end there. It's a very interesting psalm because in this text there is a crying that you see of Asaph. Asaph is looking at the prosperity of the wicked. He sees all of these people that are blaspheming. And for some reason he's got an impression that these people are prospering. Life seems to work so well for them. Life Seems to go so well for them and easy. 
And when he looks at the righteous, the righteous is struggling. Jeremiah faced the same thing as well. He's, for some reason, looking, well, what's really going on? Because these are the people that are turning against God. But how come things seem to flow in a much better way for them? There is a few things that affect what we call an optical illusion. One of them is the light. Like I said, if you, for example, in your room and it's very dark, they are, you can get so much confused about what's there. I have done a security job. And one day I was, I was uh, taken into a site for an house that got burned. And it was very dark. And I tell you, I was so afraid. Whenever I could hear anything, I would, oh, what's that? Because you can't see. Sometimes it's just a little rat passing. And you feel like, oh, maybe there is something weird going on. Until the light comes. Secondly, one of the things that affects your optical illusion is, the posi- is your eyes. It's like sometimes you stand on the road, you're waiting for someone who drives a specific car that's similar maybe to your friend's car. And while you're waiting, you think, well, this is probably Ivan coming. Because you know Ivan's car. But now because you're standing so far and you can't see too well, suddenly... While you're so convinced this is Ivan, when he gets closer, he realizes, no, it wasn't Ivan's car. Perhaps because of your, your eyes and perhaps your position. And your psychological state as well. That's why you have people who face things like hallucination. Things that are caused by, these are also optical illusions where someone that have lost maybe their kids or that have lost their brother, that have lost someone that they knew. Suddenly, because of what they face, they maybe see someone who looks like one of their brothers. They start crying because they like, oh, I've seen just my brother. It's not him. They're so convinced this is the person, but it's not. Now, here's the reality. There is always, when we speak about colors, just in us, for example, colors depends almost on the most predominant light. It's like, for example, I can take a picture, a camera, and I take a picture of someone that has an orange, tick, uh, an orange uh, top. Because of the flash, the picture or the color of the t-shirt may look as red, for example, depending on the kind of light I may impose on it. It's like if someone goes into a nightclub, you can easily get confused if you take a picture at night because of the effect of other lights on the appearance of your t-shirt or whatever you have worn because of the most dominant light. What am I trying to say? The light through which we see the world around us affects how we interpret the information before us. And in the context of Asaph, he was facing all of these reality. But these circumstances seem to, be, seems to project a certain light through which he was reading his world. And he was so convinced that the wicked was prospering. And that's the, the wicked seems to be okay in a much better place than the righteous. The question that I'm wanting to ask you is in terms of how we think of the future generation, we're living in a world where kids aren't growing in the same environment as we grew up in. They're growing up in an environment where they have cell phones, there is LBGT teachings in school, there is all kinds of things. You know, one of my friends uh, is a teacher in 
in Europe was telling me how in, in some schools, for example, there is always a, 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 a teacher that comes and teaches the kids about sexuality. And the actual teacher that is there every day does not have the right to be in class. Right? So these are the things that children are exposed to today. These are the kingdoms of the world today. The media, the social media, and all of these things. And all of these things are projecting a specific light through which they see what is good, what is right, what is comfortable, what's better, what's okay, what is amazing. They may be convinced that if I choose this way, this is probably the right way. Or we can present to them as well a Jesus that seems to be the right Jesus while it's not fully the right Jesus. We may present to them a gospel that may put them in a situation where they think they're following Jesus sincerely while they're not. Because the light we've projected isn't fully the right light. Or perhaps it's a light that gives them a very wrong impression of the true reality. Where they will not be able to walk fully in the presence of God until they know that if they're not in that presence, they are the loneliest people in the world. How does our discipleship system help people to have a better perspective about their own reality and about their own emptiness without God? So Asaph is facing this reality. But when you read from verse 1 up to verse 16, there is a lot of complaint about Asaph because he sees these things. From verse 17, there is a change. Let's go through the verse 17. No way. He says, verse 17. Um, he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their hand. It's almost like he saw now the finish line of these people in spite of the riches and everything they had. You know, uh, well, these are actually temporary reality and this is how they will end. Let's go to the following verse. He says, surely thou that set them in slippery places, that cast them down into destruction. What am I trying to say? It's not like there is a comparison between the world and God. We can't even compare God and the devil. No. What is the solution? The solution is in trying to know, okay, what is the world thinking like? What is God thinking like? No. When you see God, you see how low everything is in the whole world. When you truly see God, you realize how low the values of everything else is in the whole world. That's why Paul says that. The things that I, re- I consider as riches, today I look at them as rubbish. You don't have to give many formulas. We just have to, f- to show Jesus as, as 100% as he is. If the future generation doesn't get exposed to the full gospel, where they can truly see who God is, they will still have Jesus with other things. It will still be part of the mixture. And at some point, they might feel why it's so good to still have Jesus. 
and still be part of this other organization, these other things, and still live anyhow. But when we truly see Jesus, when the light of God becomes clear, we realize how low these other things are. You know, when Goliath came to Israel, everybody was panicking. This was the Philistine, the strongest man. But when David saw him, you know how he called him? An uncircumcised man. An unbeliever. Because he looked at the man from another lens. When Jesus arrived, while Lazarus died, while everybody was saying he's dead, because Jesus was the resurrection in life, said he's sleeping. He's sleeping. Because he was looking from a different light. The light of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Who are you involved with personally on a youth level that you know one day will be a leader or perhaps that you are making sure this person will not find himself in the midst of this confusion. That you're making sure they are really getting to know Christ. If we're not doing discipleship, we are playing church. We are playing church. We're a good Christian club. A good question that I can ask you, you don't have to answer. Since last year, have you led someone to Christ? You don't have to answer yes or no. You don't have to put pressure on it. Don't condemn yourself. Relax, relax, relax. Have you led someone to Christ? Very important. There, there is so many laws. That's why I get shocked on campus when I see some organizations running after Christians. I'm like, there is so many lost. And nobody's going to speak to them. You know, I was studying about Jesus. Je- the disciples never went to look. There were some of them that went after they heard John the Baptist saying, this is, the, this is uh, when God said, it's my beloved son, Emmanuel, please. But some of them, Jesus went to them and said, hey, follow me. What am I trying to say? If we want to have a future, if this church has to have a future, we're going to have to think of the next generation. Otherwise, we're going to face what Europe is facing. Those cathedrals that are empty today are empty because there was a generation that neglected to think intentionally about the babies, about the next generation. If you read the stories of revivals in Europe, you will freak out. Countries like Switzerland, if you look at, you read the books of the martyrs of faith, in those places. Some of them were burned for their faith. They were willing to die. These people in England, for example, the revivals there. You look at the story, and yet when you go today, in some of those places, you wonder, was this thing happening? We're going to have one day an auditorium. It's going to be happening soon. In the next 20 years, some of us, we're not going to have a lot of energy. But what are we doing with the little one? Do we think of them? Do we pray for them? That's why we need to support those that are doing schools and camps and everything. These are things that should get us excited. Otherwise, we're going to raise a generation that is confused. That thinks it's actually okay to not follow God. And it will still be good. It will still be amazing. It's actually actually okay to mix and Jesus and the world and this and this. What am I trying to say? This today's world, in today's world, I believe this is a crucial time where we need to move from just doing diplomatic discipleship to relationship. A real relationship. When Paul looks at, write to Timothy, 
you would see he was writing to him as if he was writing to his own biological son. And he says to him, in his second letter, he says, the things that you have heard from me, I would like you to entrust to those that will be able to teach others. So basically, it's Timothy, one, it's Paul, one generation, Timothy, second generation, the people that Timothy will teach, third generation, and those that will be able to teach the others, fourth generation. Are we intentional about the next generation? Do we even pray about it? Because the reality is, until they learn to live in his presence, they are the loneliest people in the whole world, and they will pursue anything to occupy that space, and it will never satisfy. That's why today there is a lot of backsliding. There's a lot of people leaving church than people staying in the church today. And there is more transfer than real conversion. There is very few people that are getting saved. One of the reasons is that nobody preached to them. Everybody's just like, cool, cool, just be cool, let's relax. Well, we can give them the cool drink, we can be cool with them and everything. But until they see Jesus, they will not be saved. They will not be saved if we don't preach the gospels. In other words, they should be planned that should be made. Okay, well, we are in observatory. We should think, okay, what are the schools that are in observatory? What are the schools that are around our areas? What can we do to reach out to them? What can we do to connect with them? Or perhaps, how, where, is the youth, where does most use of this area spend their time? Do we go where they are? Because we can have 24-7 prayer in this room for the youth to come. It's amazing. But until some of us will have to go where they are, it's not going to happen. Jesus never said, stay in the upper room and pray. Now, Jesus said, go to all the nations and make disciples. Amen? It's going to look different for some of you. It's going to look different for each and every one of us. For me, maybe it's a music. I'm going to go and perform at festivals and different things. For other people, it may look different. You might do your artwork. But all I'm trying to say is that as the church, as the body, as a responsibility, to think of the infant, to think of the younger ones. And these are the deeper things that you see Matthew and Mark and all these people conveying through the narrative of Jesus. When Jesus, among the things being about Jesus, there is an emphasis. Matthew, for example, chapter 2, 3, 4, you'll see many times Jesus is quoted as the child, the child, the child. There is an intentionality into the text that emphasizes on the process of his growth. The time, and I was thinking about the past, you know, most of the pain we get, I've noticed one thing, even in ministry, most issues in the church aren't often spiritual issues. Most of the issues have to do, have to do with how we grew up. To be very honest, it's from my experience in ministry with people that speak in tongue and prophesy and do everything, most of the issues have nothing to do with the spirit and Jesus and the word. Most of the struggles we face have to do with how we grew up. That's why we need to be first involved. The Muslims are very intentional. They make sure they get in schools. They bombard kids. And it's very difficult to get them out. I've noticed one thing when I used to be involved in deliverance. Most people who were initiated in witchcraft, for example, from a very young age, it's very difficult for them to come out of it. Because it, it has become like part of the norm. If at a very young age, from the youth, we can be intentional. We're not going to create a group of people that are suffering from an optical illusion. Where they think, oh, this is it. But what they think is not. The question is, 
What are we doing? Are we, what are we doing? It's going to look different for each and every one of us. But we have a responsibility. If we don't do anything, the, the kingdom of darkness will also create a policy there. Where they will say, in every school, there must be pornography. Your kids will watch pornography if you want them to go to school. You know, in Europe, they even control how school, uh, like homeschool. They even control homeschool. Where, what you have to play, which program are you going to do. So if we don't do anything, there is a kingdom that is also very busy with it. And, and it's, it's going like this. In other words, we have to think beyond our four corners. We have to think about what are we really doing. There was a student last year that was struggling a lot. He only came to church two, two times last year. But in April, the Lord said to me one day, contact him. I wasn't really in touch with him. Texted him. He ignored, he ignored me for four good months. He ignored all my calls and he ignored all my WhatsApp. And I kept on texting him. And one day... When I texted him, he said, okay, I can meet with him. When I met with him, he said, I've rejected Christianity. I've rejected everything. I've rejected the whole Jesus thing. And we said, and it was difficult. And suddenly the Holy Spirit gave me a question to ask him. Gave him, and I, re- I led him to the Lord. And he disappeared again. Disappeared again. He ignored me again. On the next semester, we started meeting and meeting and meeting. At the very end of the year, last year, we had School of the Nations. And I felt the Lord said, Ask him to do school of the nation. I'm like, he didn't even come to church. How is he even going to commit for, for 10 days? And I spoke with him. He said, yes, he's going to do it. The day before school of the nations, he said, Matthew, I've just decided to decline. I'm not going to come. And I was in observatory meeting another student at the spur. I said to him, I have to go see someone. I ran from there to Woolsack and Middle Campus. I went to see him. When I got there, we spoke, we spoke. I went to the other student. I argued with him for a good hour. And then I convinced him. And then he discovered So now on the fourth day, of school, the fifth day, we had a session where you tell your story about your life. Where to tell from your childhood until now. He started telling his story. Damaging story, like hectic story. And then he said... The week before school donations, he was planning on buying pills to kill himself, to commit suicide. So if he wasn't there at school of donations, by that time, he would have already been dead. So it costed someone to hear the voice of the Lord, to persevere on the word. I didn't care about how he felt about my messages. I didn't care. All I cared was continuing what I was hearing, following him. And today, that guy is... So much on fire. Even looks different. Everyone is telling me, oh, this guy looks very different. He's very different. He hosted the small group at the residence where he's staying last Wednesday. Very committed. God has restored him. Why? Not because I had a technique. No. The voice of the Lord. Last year, there was another student. I was standing at the Jami Shuttle for those that know UCT. I was standing there. The Lord said to me, call this student. Took my phone, I phoned him, he didn't pick up. What's up? He didn't. Then the Holy Spirit said, I was about, I was going to Bible school. I was about to take the College of Music route. They were said, don't go that way. Rather walk through this other residence, Copano. So I walked through there. As I was walking, I even passed the residence. I passed the bridge. Down the bridge was that student. Very depressed. He was third year and he was about to cancel his registration. Because he was thinking, no, he's got something funny about his psychology. Just like that. 
And I sat with him for a good hour. He's finishing this year. And he's back. In fact, even this other student, he was excluded by UCT because he fell three courses last year because of his depression. And he didn't even go to the doctor or anything. And he came to see me while he came to write his sap. We sat with him. We prayed for, we prayed at my house. And then the same day, UCT emailed him and said he's back. He can come and study. And he's back. So this student, we sat for a good hour. We prayed. He got better and he's finishing this year. Why am I saying? I'm saying there is a battle. And some of the battles are outside of the control. But someone is a kid. There are people that are irresponsible and that are just doing And the enemy is busy and busy and busy. But we need a leadership. We need a discipleship system that is spirit-led, that rescues the people from the agendas of the enemy and the victimhood that is being imposed by the powers of darkness. Let's stand and we're going to pray. Tapio, if you guys can just be playing a little bit of the guitar. I would like us to to ask God to open our eyes and open our hearts. Because we only have one assignment to make disciples. If we're not making disciples, we are not doing what Jesus said then we're not different from running any good society organization. You know, there is only two major things that the Bible speaks of God seeking. The lost and the worshippers. And I would love us to pray, not just for ourselves, but to pray for the next generation. Just look at how much abortion today is such a big thing. The problem isn't just that they want to be a freedom. No, the enemy knows the values of a little life. So I would have us to pray for the schools, to pray for the teachers, to pray for the students, to pray that God will turn the hearts together. Let us pray for, for great opportunities to reach out to the lost in those places. Perhaps ask God, what is your role in this whole context? Perhaps you might even be going through an optical illusion as well. Just like Asaph. And he would allow God to, to bring his light. The Bible says his light was the life of man. So I would love us to, to take this opportunity to cry out to God. And ask him to open the eyes of our hearts. To see the greater hope. To see the greater vision. The vision of the Father for the next generation. Perhaps to show us what it is that we need to lay down. To be part of what he's doing with the next generation.